Good evening, everyone. Good to have you here. I bet you didn't know that it's already December. My goodness, how fast, how fast the year has gone. And, uh, well, Lord willing, another year will come. It is my goal to finish the book of Obadiah this evening. Now, that doesn't mean anything other than the fact that that's my goal. I certainly want us to finish this evening. Whoops. There we go. Book of Obadiah. If you're still searching for it, it's between the book of Amos and the book of Jonah. So, but if you found it, that's where we are. And tonight, I want to focus on a few things, but I think I'm going to wait till the end to see how much time we have. Just some thoughts that uh, I've been dealing with throughout this day as we began to find out about another shooting, mass shooting in California in San Bernardino County. And um, everything that's been taking place uh, over the past few weeks, one second. I'm going to start using tape, I think. Or maybe a staple gun. <laughs> Keep that thing where it's supposed to be. Going back even a few weeks to Paris and the terrorism that was taking place there. And we don't even know what happened today. We don't know if that was terrorism. But what it does is it, it brings up a lot of, of talk, a lot of rhetoric from places where we need to hear support, support for our law enforcement officers who put their lives on the line and not to hear stupid political talk. We got people dying, and what, what we can do is blame it on one party or another. And unfortunately, a lot of that comes from the top. So if I sound a little frustrated, I hope and pray that the Lord will calm my heart and allow me to speak spiritually rather than fleshly tonight. But we'll get into that maybe in just a little bit. And I think it kind of leads up to that. In, uh, in the last few verses of the book of Obadiah. So we'll, we'll see how, how the Lord leads us in that. But tonight as we finish our study in the prophecy of Obadiah, let's, let's briefly review what we've learned so far. We have learned that the prophecy that was given to Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah, dealt with God's judgment on the nation of Edom for its sin of pride. Edom is the nation that descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. And we know that the two brothers maintained great animosity toward one another for many years. 
And though they seem to finally make peace, as we studied not too long ago in the book of Genesis, the two resulting nations continued with these feelings of animosity. Remember that Edom refused to allow Israel passage through their land when they were trying to reach the promised land under the leadership of Moses. And certainly from that time on, and probably even before, there were these tensions, there were these animosities and bitternesses that existed between these two brothers. And again, I emphasize brothers. You have to realize they are family. And then we read in the last book of the Old Testament, at least in the Christian Bible, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the Lord said in Malachi that he hated Esau. And the reason that he hated Esau, or Edom, because really it's talking about Edom, but the reason that he hated Edom was because of their pride. They were proud of their national defenses, being that they lived amongst the rocks and, you know, uh, the defenses of the mountains and the crags of the mountains and all. They boasted of their national defenses, their strong allies, their superior wisdom. They thought they were really wise above all peoples. And that pride was manifested in their treatment of their brother Israel when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember that Jacob became Israel. Jacob was told by God, I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel. And then the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, became the nation of Israel. So now it moves from a familial kind of a war to one of nations, even though they're still family. And when Babylon descended upon Jerusalem, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, only stood by watching. They just watched as Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. They laughed and they mocked and even encouraged the enemy to destroy the place. And when the battle was over, they went into the city themselves to steal and to loot anything that was left behind by the Jews. And then, in a final display of hatred, they rounded up all the refugees that they encountered and they handed them over to the Babylonians. Not unlike how many Jews were rounded up and handed over to the Nazis back in the 30s and 40s. How did God feel about all of this? Well, let's read the rest of this prophecy in Obadiah, beginning of verse 15. Notice it begins with a word for, and I'll explain that in a moment. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions the possessions of the Edomites. 
And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. What a powerful and strong statement is made by God about the judgment that was going to come upon Edom. And they of the south shall possess the mountain of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the, the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors or deliverers shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That is the hope. We've talked a lot about the judgment and the reason for the judgment, but that is the hope. I draw your attention again to verse 15 and to the first word in the, in the verse. It says, for. It is the word that means because. Because the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Now, of course, we have to tie that in to what has been said previously. So if you'll go back a little bit, go back over to verse 12. Because I want to remind you of what God said to Edom. God said, But thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Now, now underline, if you will, thou shouldst not. You should not have looked on the day or looked on the day that the, your brother in, had become a stranger. Neither should thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of thy people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of, dis of distress. Again, you shouldn't have looked on when, when your own brothers were being attacked. You shouldn't have rejoiced over the children of Israel in the day of their destruction. You shouldn't have done all of these things. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have. So Obadiah told the Edomites quite plainly that they shouldn't have acted so violently toward their brother Israel. And why? Why should they not have done all that they did? Because, you see, now there we get to verse 15, because the day of the Lord is near. You should have done none of those things with that violent attitude and prideful attitude that you had because the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. I mean, that's quite a statement. Listen, if you think for a moment that God doesn't remember our behavior, we ought to think again. 
The Edomites practiced this animosity toward their brothers for centuries. And while they might have thought they were getting away with it, God was keeping his record. We, we would want to believe, listen, we would want to believe, well, you know, maybe God will forget. Or maybe if God is the way that we think he should be, then he, you know, he's going to be merciful. Well, yes, he is merciful. But he's also a God of righteousness and a God of justice. A God that is true. Consider the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 11 through 13. Solomon writes, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, you know, because there's not judgment that just comes right away sometimes, like we would want it to be. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Just because God doesn't judge immediately doesn't mean that he's not going to judge. That's the point. The fact of the matter is when he judges after a period of time like that and men become more evil, the judgment is going to be even harder. Even more powerful, even, even stronger. And then he goes on and says, Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. And the question is, why doesn't the Lord always execute judgment immediately then? Certainly when we see injustices, or when we see wickedness, or evil being done, we want judgment immediately. But the scripture tells us something about God. And yes, this is God. This is what he's about. Psalm 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And sometimes we don't want to read that. We don't want to hear that. When things have happened to us or to our family or to our people. But the fact of the matter is, he is this for us as well. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Why doesn't the Lord execute judgment right away? Because he's long-suffering and he gives us space to repent and turn toward him. He gives us that space. He gives people that space. If God had not given us some of that space at some point in our lives, at some time when we were evil, when we were wicked, when we did things that offended God, and we did it sometimes in God's face, and he wasn't merciful and long-suffering. Where would we be right now? We might, not, we might not even be here. Why didn't he just wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah when he first wanted to? Why didn't he just clean the city of Nineveh right off the face of the earth? Why did he even bother sending Jonah to Nineveh? Because the Lord's desire, you see, is for repentance, not for judgment. His desire is for repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward uh, to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want you to notice what he, he goes on to say in the next verse, because the next verse really brings us back to the theme of Obadiah. It says, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The day of the Lord is coming. And when you read in the scriptures, and we don't have time to go into the day of the Lord. I've done many studies on the day of the Lord, especially when we were going through the book of Daniel, we were going through the book of Revelation. And, and, and we talked about the day of the Lord being a day as described in the book of Joel, in the, in the prophecy of Joel, that it's a day of darkness and not of light. And, in, and, and throughout most of the prophets, the day of the Lord signifies a time period, not, not just a, a, a day, but a, but a period of time of darkness. For certain it is a darkness of seven years that we call the tribulation period. But it's even more than that. But when you go back to verse 9 and you realize that it says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. I mean, the, the, the idea is, yes, God has been merciful. God has been long-suffering. But there's a day coming that is going to come. It's, it's, it's not going to be prolonged any longer. It's not gonna, it's not, in other words, it's not going to be put off any longer. And so he says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's going to happen. Just like everything else that we have seen in the scriptures that have already been predicted and already been fulfilled have happened, this will happen. And it will not be pretty for those who have been rejecting Christ, rejecting God, rejecting his word. Rejecting his truth. And getting back to Edom, Edom would not repent. And because they would not repent, Obadiah told them that the day of the Lord was near upon all the heathen. The word is goy or goyim, which means nations or, you know, just Gentile nations. But I believe heathen is a, is, is a good word that is used here, a good translation of the word goy or goyim. Goyim is plural. Nations that have turned away from God. Now we have to consider this as we always do the prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures. We consider this a split prophecy. One having an immediate or a near fulfillment on the nation of Edom. But its ultimate fulfillment will take place when the Lord returns. There will be a fulfillment in the end, even though the Edomites really disappeared. So what we have to think about then is what is then what gets, what gets carried on into that very same region, but the attitude of the heart of Edom, which was pride and bitterness and hatred toward Israel. There's no doubting that. That's as clear as, 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 as we can see throughout all of the prophecies concerning Israel and its, and, and its enemies. 
I mean, the, the Edomites were, were taken over by the Nabataeans, and then later on, the Nabataeans moved out south to a place called Edomia. Edomia is, is the same word from, from Edom, from where the Herods came. Herod, Herods, the Herods, from, from the time of Jesus and before the time of Jesus, were Edomians. But then after A.D. 70, there's nothing heard any longer about the Edomites. So we know that the near fulfillment took place. And if there was any later on that came, it would come through the other nations that would then surround Israel. But Edom, which was once a very rich and a very prosperous nation, when you look at it today, is now a very barren land. It is a wasteland, and its people are gone. I want you to notice one of the laws of God that we don't pay much attention to nowadays. It's found in verse 15. So go back to verse 15 of our text. Oh, by the way, that's a little statement here. I never bring up the pictures at the right time. Anyway, that's about the day of the Lord. It's uh, darkness and all. But it, it's, it's, there's a quote from 1 Thessalonians 5.2, if you can't see it. It says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Just what, what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3. Same thing. All right, so go, go to Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. But notice the, notice the next statement. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. That's a law. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. But how often do we think about that? I mean, let's face it. How often do we think about it? Let's, let's ask ourselves. Now, most people try to remember something called the golden rule. The golden rule, uh, do unto others, we say. But it comes from a teaching by Jesus. In Jesus, and, and there's the Sermon on the Mount, actually. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, uh, Jesus uses these words. He says, therefore all things whatsoever you do, uh, I'm sorry, therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, the things that you would like that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And that goes back, actually, to, a, to another law that is given to us in, in, in the book of Leviticus. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. I mean, if you want them to treat you this way, you, get, you treat them that way. So on the prophets. It, clear, it, it, it becomes a little clearer to us in, in Luke's account when he says in Luke 6.31, And as you would that men should do to you, do ye like also uh, to them likewise. As you would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise, the very same way. So there's similarities here. And we could even take, listen, we could even take that law in Obadiah 15 to say this, you know, as you do unto someone, you know, that's going to happen to you. When you think about it, that can be looked at in, in a good way and a bad way. For many, many, many years, the United States of America has been the friend of Israel, a good friend of Israel, a protector friend of Israel. 
crucial to the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Crucial. As we have done to them, God bless this nation. You, you see what I'm saying? As we have done to them, God has done for us. That goes all the way back to what was said to Abraham. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. <clears throat> what is happening today? Almost a complete turnaround. And when we stop blessing Israel, whatever we do to them will be done to us. Why are we in the mess that we're in then? All right. Just a thought out there. All right. So what we find here in Obadiah is distinct from the rule in the sense from Jesus who was really saying, yes, you would have men do to you, you do to them. Nobody says, you know, come and beat me up so that I can beat you up. You, you see, that's, that's absurd. <clears throat> that's an absurdity in, in, the, in the philosophical sense. So what we find here in Obadiah is distinct from that particular rule, and it needs to be remembered as well as what Jesus taught. Because whatever we do to others will be brought back to us, whether good or bad. Can we be certain that the Lord will hold us to that rule? Well, let's for a moment consider the words of James in James chapter 2. So go to the New Testament and go to James chapter 2 and look at verses 12 and 13. And James writes, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Do what you need to do, but do what you do, knowing that you'll be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. And we're getting an idea of what the law of liberty is. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. If you show no mercy, you will have no mercy shown to you by God. You understand that? This is, star this is stark. It's strong. And mercy rejoices against judgment. So if mercy takes place, that's a good thing. Show mercy. Show mercy. What does James say about our actions toward others being returned upon our own heads, you see? He said that if we are unmerciful to others, we can expect the same treatment from the Lord. Isn't it funny, and I don't mean funny ha-ha, but isn't it funny that we want God to punish others for their sinful acts, but when we sin against Him, we cry out for mercy? Think about that for just a moment. Thinking about it? So I don't want this thought to go away. Think about it. Isn't it funny, not ha-ha, but isn't it funny 
that we hold on to anger and bitterness because of the sins of others against us, but then we sin against God and expect Him to forgive us. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe it's strange. Especially coming from people that should know the Word of God and do what the Word of God says. Well, this doesn't just apply to Edom or even to us. Because Obadiah said that the day of the Lord was near upon all nations. All nations. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you look at verses 19 and 20. Now, I know I'm skipping a few verses. I, 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 bear with me. <clears throat> Let's go to verses 19 and 20. If you look at verses 19 and 20, you'll see a partial starting list of some of these nations and something else that is very interesting. So let's look at the verses first. Verse 19. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Now I'm going to explain it very quickly in just a moment. But the land that is being pointed out is the land that is being disputed over today between Israel and the Palestinians, or more correctly, the Arabs. It is the very same land that is being disputed about today. So here it goes. The area in the south where the Jews are, that, that takes us all the way down to the Negev Desert, southern part of Israel. So the area in the south where the Jews are will be possessed by them, which is the area of the Mount of Esau. You look across the Dead Sea, you see the mountains of Esau, the mountains of Edom. They will possess that. That will be what will be their possession of those who are in the south of Israel. They will possess, they will go over into the land of Jordan in the area of Petra. That will be theirs. Very clear from the statement that it says. They, they of the south shall possess. Possess. It would be theirs, given to them by God. But they shall possess the mount of Esau. This is today, as I said, southern Jordan. And, by the way, not to discount this, but it's also including Saudi Arabia. I didn't put a map up today, but you can look it up and see how close we are connected to that area. We'll come back and talk about that another time because we're going to get into the book of Ezekiel pretty soon too. And in Ezekiel, we're going to see of course, all of these things again. The lowland now. The lowland where the Philistines lived. 
So we want to look at the, the text again. And they have the plain of the Philistines. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. So the lowland where the Philistines lived is what is called today the Gaza Strip. Y'all heard of the Gaza Strip? That is the Gaza Strip along the Mediterranean Sea. And then the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, which is up a little further north, the fields of Ephraim and Samaria is what is today called the West Bank. Have you heard the West Bank? Yeah, we all know what where that is. Okay. And Gilead. Gilead is the area that is called today the Golan Heights. And Israel already has the Golan Heights. So that would include even more of the Golan Heights, which goes into Syria. And then Zarephath. I didn't say Arafat. He's dead now, by the way. They called him the Palestinian, but he was actually Egyptian. Isn't that interesting? Because there are no Palestinians, really. Okay, well, that's another for another hour later. Zarephath is the area of the north called Tyre. T-Y-R-E. Tyre and Sidon make up what is today the nation of Lebanon. Lebanon at one time was friendly with Israel, cautiously friendly, as Jordan is today, cautiously friendly with Israel. But today in Lebanon, uh, the Hezbollah do their dirty work out of Le Lebanon into Israel, the firing of missiles and rockets. Down in the Gaza and West Bank, supported by Hamas, the enemies of Israel. Well, we could go on and on about all of the rest of them and who supports them. Many of them supported by Iran, who today we have made some kind of an agreement with that eventually is going to allow Iran to build a nuclear weapon. No matter what the politicians say, that's going to happen. And it just makes me shake my head. And I could say a lot of things tonight, but I won't. Because my wife is looking at me and she knows what I say all the time at home. <laughs> and by the way, I do pray about this afterwards. I say, oh God, forgive me. There are these things that I think and say, but I have to understand these things. I want to understand what's going on in this world. Because what the Word of God tells me is that at any time, Jesus can come. And we need to be ready for that. So it doesn't matter what the United Nations or anyone else says about this land. For in the kingdom age, the land will be given to the Jewish people by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no doubt about that. There's no other, there, there, there is no other religious document, as it were, 
that has had the accuracy of prophecy being fulfilled like the Bible, like the Word of God, like the Hebrew Scriptures have been fulfilled. Not only about the nation of Israel, but about the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus. Every prophecy has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled because the Word of God is true. When you look at verse 21 now of our text, it says, And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And I bring this up now because and we're, and we're not done, by the way. I know those are the last three verses of, of the chapter, but uh, I just kind of turned things around for you. But, but the reason why I'm saying this is because we know that when Jesus Christ shall come back to this earth with ten thousands of his saints, that would be you and me and then everybody else that loves Jesus. But when Christ shall come back to this earth with ten thousands of his saints, he will rule and reign and judge from the throne of David in Jerusalem. That's why there's still a Jerusalem. Don't, don't believe that the people that say, well, listen, all these prophecies are fulfilled and, and the, you know, that land over there, that's, that, you know, what we should be doing, we should be helping the Palestinians because they're, they're poor people and Israel, you know, Israel's uh, dominating them and Israel, you know, showing all kinds of stuff against them. And they have no clue. They have drunk the Kool-Aid of the liberal theology and mindset and political mindset as well. They have no clue that Jesus is coming like he said. Okay. Uh, uh. <laughs> Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He is redeeming man back to God. But if he is rejected, he will come again as the lion of the tribe of Judah to judge a Christ-rejecting world. We have studied that in the Old Testament. We, are, we have studied that in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, and throughout many of the prophecies that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Thessalonians and in other, book, in other uh, letters. But I want you to always remember this statement. It is Hebrews 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the great thing is this. In Christ, you who are believers in Jesus Christ, in Christ you are carried in his everlasting arms. You are carried. The, the great shepherd carries you as his sheep. As believers in Jesus Christ, you will not be judged in the manner in which he judges the nation simply because you have made peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven and your sins are paid in full. Remember these words as an encouragement to you. The words of Paul, I had placed a slide of the day of the Lord and it, 
quoted from this chapter, but let's go to that chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, but go down to verse 9, because in verse 9 it says, for God has not appointed us believers in Jesus Christ. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Comfort yourselves together. In other words, encourage each other's hearts. Encourage each other about the coming of the Lord. You know, we can talk about a lot of things in the church today. We can talk about things that are happening in the world. We can talk about sports. We can talk about food. We can talk about a lot of things. Those might encourage us for a minute or two. But what encourages us more than anything else is to talk about Jesus coming. To talk about why he came in the first place. You know, in a couple, in a few weeks, you know, everybody's going to be celebrating Christmas. And I've been pastoring this church for 31 years. And we have a tree out there and, you know, we sing Christmas songs and we do this and that. But you know why we do that? We do that because we want people to hear about Jesus. So I'm not going to be, you know, 31 years already, I'm not going to argue with anybody. With, you know, if you don't like Christmas, you want to put a tree, don't put a tree up. I'm going to argue with you about it. You don't want a gift? Okay. You know, I bet just... The greatest gift has already been given. So what are you worried about? You want to, you want to be a bah humbug? Go be a bah humbug, you know? But tell somebody about Jesus. That's what this time is for us to do and to use. You know why there are lights? Do you know why this and that is happening? Because Jesus has come. Why did I get into Christmas? I forgot. Oh, comforting each other. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we need to comfort each other. Well, Christmas is attacked nowadays. Christians are attacked. For what we believe and who we believe in. So do we cower in a corner or do we stand for what we believe? You know, we're not preaching Christmas. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That's why He came. So we have lights. So what? They go off in a month anyway. Or don't plug them in. <laughs> Here I go again. I got to stop. All right. <laughs> Comfort each other. Edify one another. Love each other and show people that Jesus loves them and came to die for them and give his life so that they would have eternal life. Getting back to Edom. That's for Edom and the heathen nations. Now we go back to verse 16 because that's, that's the section we haven't gotten to yet. This is important. Verses 16 through 18. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, speaking to Edom, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been 
But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, gives, giving us a kind of an idea that Israel itself will be somewhat of, of, of the, the catalyst for, for the destruction of Edom. But then it says, And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. As we've already seen, when Jerusalem fell, the Edomites entered the city and began to rejoice, plundering the goods. In other words, they went into God's capital city and partied. I mean, they just partied. If that's the best word we can use. They drank on God's holy mountain, it says. That's some desecration. And then we read something interesting. Just as Edom went in and drank you know, on God's holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually, and they shall be as though they had not been. What does that mean? I want you to turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 17. And then stay there for a couple more verses toward the end of that chapter. Jeremiah. Did I finish that? And there shall not be any remaining? Yeah. All right, so Jeremiah 25, verse 15 says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand. Now, God, is, you know, God used Jeremiah to give pictures to Israel. Okay, so this, understand that. So, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury uh, at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it, and they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And then took I the cup of the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. Took the message that this was going to happen if they had dishonored and rejected him. But then if you go down to verses 27 and 28, it says, Therefore thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink ye, and be drunken, and spew, vomit, and fall, and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink." In other words, if, they, if, if they're saying, you know, we, we don't want to drink. The Lord says, tough. You're going to drink the cup of my wrath. You've been drinking the cup of your profanities and the cup of your idolatries. You've been drinking that. So now drink this. So using what can only be labeled as poetic justice, Obadiah says that Edom, along with the other nations, will drink again, but this time the cup will not hold wine. It will be the cup of the wrath of God. And if we are to learn anything at all from this, it ought to be that Edom wasn't singled out for its enmity against God's people Israel, which was really enmity against God himself. Whatever form wicked pride takes, pride is an affront to God. 
and God will judge all who refuse to humble themselves. And that, I'm afraid, will even reach to our very own nation as well. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Listen to the words. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for, the fear, for fear of the Lord and, and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. That's pride. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. You don't think there are a lot of men today who exalt themselves above God in their nations, in their capitals? For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty and upon every one that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. Consider what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, dealing with that great statue and the interpretation of what all of these things meant that pointed to the times of the Gentiles and all. But in Daniel 2 verses 44 and 45 it says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, which was the statue, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. The rock that destroys is Jesus Christ. That in a nutshell is the day of the Lord. But what about Jerusalem? And what about God's people? The hope that we talked about and see also in verse 21. The kingdom is the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Go back to verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken it. While Edom could only look forward to doom and to destruction, verse 17 says that there's going to be deliverance on Mount Zion, which is sort of a poetic name for Jerusalem. Mount Zion is Jerusalem. And when all, and when will all of this take place? This is the question. When will all of this take place? When is all of this going to be? 
In accord with the full understanding of what is called the day of the Lord, it will be the time of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Oh, we listen, we would have to go through the whole book of Zechariah to get that bold picture of Jesus coming and setting his feet upon the Mount of Olives and then going in, entering and opening the gate of the eastern gate of Jerusalem, walking in and going in to, to sit upon the throne. And we're thinking, well, we don't see any of, the, any of that yet. You know, that could happen pretty quickly. That is the hot spot of the world, the Temple Mount. That is... The focal point for all of the universe. That is the epicenter of all of history. The Temple Mount. So remember there are seven years of tribulation for Israel, for Israel's sake. The church will not be here. God has to remove the church so that he can deal with, with his people. There's nothing else for us to do but to be with him because we're the bride of Christ. That's why our hearts need to be toward Israel today because God's not done with his people. The day's going to be dark. The day of the Lord is a dark day. Before all of that can take place, things are going to be established. The first three and a half years of that seven-year period, all of these treaties are going to be made by some person who's going to come, and, and everybody's going to look and say, oh, my goodness, this is the Savior of the world. It's Antichrist. We've already talked about that in our, our other studies. We're, we're not going to spend time on that. But the point is that when all of this time, things can happen. Drive around, drive around town, you know. It doesn't take 48 years any longer to build a temple. It could be built in 48 days, even to code. So these things will happen. There will be a temple for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom in, in, when, when it does happen. There's no doubt. So the time that follows the day of the Lord when our a Messiah and Savior is going to put down all the heathen nations and exalt his own people and sit on his throne begins the millennial kingdom. It is a day that will be characterized by true holiness, folks. That is why we're, we, we see here in, the, in this particular text, verse 17, and there shall be holiness. There shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. It is a day that would be characterized by true holiness, for as we look around, there is no true holiness in our world today. Now, think about this. Don't... don't 
start drawing conclusions, think about the statement. There is no true holiness in this world today. We can write all the laws that we want and govern people with an iron fist, but sinful people will be sinful people, and no matter what we do, we won't change that. Even God's people in His churches struggle daily with real holiness. But I want to have you turn to Matthew 24. I'm going to close with this, with, with the time remaining. Because I want to tie uh, the, the end of this to, to where we are today and what's happening today. I, I don't want to spend too much time because I want to make sure you all leave on time. But I want you to turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. The Olivet Discourse. Beginning with verse 7. We could read a lot of it because it's a big, long passage, but I just want to take this section from verse 7 to verse 13. Jesus said, For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Just, just the fact that it says nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, we see today. And guess how we're going to have peace? Because we're going to have a good hold on climate change. We're going to beat global warming. Isn't that stupid? You want to read about global warming? Go to the book of Revelation where it says about the Lord heating up this, this people and people get mad at God for it. That's global warming, man. And people are buying this. Do you know that 12 out of 13 scientists think this is stupid? I'm sorry to keep using that word. But it is. But you won't ever read about that because nobody wants that to come out because, you know, politically we're, we're establishing, you know, this one world global government. My God, what idiots. Okay, I have to, I have to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi. The first Star Wars movie, the very first one that was number four, but I don't figure that one out. The first one that was number four. Obi-Wan Kenobi said, who's the bigger fool? The fool or the one that follows him? Wow, what wisdom. How many people are following this foolishness today? Okay, calm. Okay. Nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. These things are happening. All these are just the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. But then it says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. Now remember he's speaking primarily to his Jewish brethren. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Do you know that that's not just the Jews anymore, but it's the Christians too? Do you know that in, in, in certain boats that were carrying uh, hundreds of people, uh, refu Syrian refugees, that they were throwing Christians off those boats? The Muslims were throwing Christians off the boats? I bet you didn't read that because it's not publicized. 
So if you didn't get beheaded over there or burned, you got thrown off boats and drowned. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Do you know that today anything we say will offend people? And they'll want to throw us in the clink. That's a jail, by the way. Political correctness is just gone amok today. And we've got student riots going on, getting people fired. For what reason? For no good reason. I could go into that another half hour here. Maybe two hours. Then I could get it all out of my system and you guys will just love me all the more, right? All right. Then shall many be offended, shall betray one another, shall hate one another. That's talking about, listen, being, being offended by somebody and then betraying them, just like they did the Christians who were, that were helping the Jews escape Nazi Germany. Because there weren't only Jews in the concentration camps. There were Christians there for helping the Jewish people. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. By the way, the word iniquity there literally means lawlessness. Lawlessness. Because lawlessness shall abound. What happened today in San Bernardino? What happened last week in Colorado? What happened in Paris a few weeks ago? What's happening on the streets of the city? I bet you didn't realize that in a certain city, I'm thinking it was New Orleans, maybe I'm wrong, but just last week as well, there, there, were, there was a, a, a street gang that shot up and injured a bunch of people, but that wasn't in the front of the news, like that guy killing, you know, killing people at the Planned Parenthood Center. And, and then, of course, the first thing that people are saying is, well, it's you Republicans or you, you know, conservatives, and it's all your fault. Do you know that, one of the, that the police officer who died there in Colorado was a, was a pastor, and he was a believer, and he was a pro-life person who went to rescue people in the Planned Parenthood? And this is the kind of rhetoric, this is the kind of stupidity that is going on in our world today. Wow. There's even one more verse. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Let's endure. Because we know who strengthens us through these times. I know my blood pressure goes up. I take stuff for it. but I know who's coming. And I want you to know that he's coming. And he's coming soon. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. We can make it. We don't make it on our own. We make it because of Jesus. We make it because of his love and his grace and his mercy. We make it because he's already planned this out. He, he's in control of all things. 
We make it because he loves us with an everlasting love. We make it because we have him in our lives each and every day, each and every moment of our lives. With every breath we take, with every step we take, with everything we do, he is our life. And we will see his glory. So shall I remind you where Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Comfort yourselves with that. Be comforted. Be comforted with the words of the Apostle Paul who said that at the shout of God, at the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and meet the Lord in the air, and there we shall ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. No matter what we see in this life, Jesus is coming. Be comforted. Okay. I only went over three minutes. Well, maybe four. And if I don't shut up, it's going to be five. All right, let's all stand. And let's go to the Lord in prayer.